The gospel read here the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? This is a gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask for your presence with us now. Um, we sit in the midst of a, a weary and weeping world, and we come mindful of our own sorrows and the many sorrows uh, around us. And so we ask that you would meet us in this space, and that you would speak to us, that you would allow us to sense your presence, and I pray that you would use this time as we sit with your scriptures uh, to stir us up and that you would meet us in the midst of our sorrow, that you would meet us in the midst of all the complexity and confusion of life, and that you would refresh our souls. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we've been talking a lot about God with us about the presence of God. We've been doing it kind of all year at this point. And we're continuing our Lent series about God being with us in different aspects of our life. And we come uh, this morning to God with us in our sorrow. Uh, and suffering, sorrow, that's a hard topic, right? I mean, it's hard on a personal level uh, because we're all wounded. We're all wounded to some degree. And many of us are wounded in profound ways, uh, often in ways that we don't even understand. Our experiences of suffering are usually the most fragile, often the most confusing parts of our life stories. And since no two experiences of suffering are identical, these are parts of our stories where we often feel the least known, uh, the most alone, and often where we experience uh, the most confusing aspects of this internal struggle of simultaneously wanting to be known and yet fearing what that would entail, right? You with me? Does that make sense, right? But then there are others, uh, right? For others, they want to enter into our lives or you want to enter into the life of your friends or others. You want to come alongside uh, and, there, and others want to come alongside you. And these delicate matters can often feel the most off limits, right? Where the fear of saying the wrong thing uh, or the fear of causing more harm than help, or insecurity about not having experienced the same kind of suffering, or either similar in kind or similar in degree. These things can keep our conversations and our relationships in the shallow end where it feels safer, right? And they can keep the deep end of our lives roped off and unvisited by others and often even by ourselves. 
So suffering, it's a hard thing to talk about at a personal level, but it's also a hard thing to talk about at an intellectual or spiritual level. You see, the problem of evil and of suffering has perplexed philosophers and theologians and regular folks for millennia. If God is good and all-powerful, then how and why do evil and suffering persist in the world? That question is as old as the hills, and it's been the subject of much argument and speculation. It's been the subject as much as just about any other, right? If you were going to set up a tournament bracket, for example, with all of the obstacles to faith and rank them and make them compete for the top, you know, the top seed of what is the greatest obstacle that has plagued humanity, the problem of evil and suffering would absolutely be a number one seed in that tournament bracket. It might win the day as the number one in every poll. But unfortunately, what happens is people of both belief and unbelief in a God who is both good and all-powerful have engaged this problem and have retreated from the complexity in a way that opts for a simplistic solution really as a way of escaping the ambiguities and landing as quickly as possible in a place of resolution. You see, the simplistic maneuver that the one who maybe denies the existence of a good and all-powerful God is often to just take the question and make it rhetorical. If God is good and all-powerful, how could evil and suffering possibly exist? It's not a question that's seeking an answer. It's a question that's meant to drop the mic and end the conversation, right? It's not a curious question that invites further consideration and contemplation. But on the flip side, honestly, often the simplistic solutions that are offered by people of faith aren't a lot, aren't much better. Because when we, as those who do believe in a good and all-powerful God, seek refuge in clear-cut answers that make the ambiguity try to go away, rather than resting in the goodness of God who is with us in the midst of suffering, we do weird things. And we say weird things to other people. One example is when I, you know, when I was a college student, I went to hear a prominent Christian speaker on my campus, and someone asked this question about how, how an all-good and all-powerful God uh, could allow evil to persist, and he reframed the question as, why do bad things happen to good people, and then immediately said, they don't, there are no good people. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There are no good people. There's no bad thing we can suffer beyond what we deserve. Therefore, unjust suffering doesn't exist. End of story. Logically, that's neat and tidy. And it begins with a truth that is taught in Scripture, that we as human beings are all sinful. That's true. But it maximizes that one teaching, and it makes it the lens through which we must explain everything, and it ends up dismissing a very important other truth that is also plainly taught in Scripture and that is writ large across the story of humanity, and that is that unjust suffering is very real. It is real. It happens, and it's bad. And as we read the story of Scripture, what we see is not only is unjust suffering real, it is evil, and God doesn't like it. It contradicts God's good purposes for the world, and the story of God is the story of one who is committed to rooting it out of his world. 
committed to making all things new. God calls his people to actually strive against injustice with love. So when we dismiss that reality of unjust suffering in an effort to vindicate God against accusations that we don't know how to resolve otherwise, what we do is we run the risk of becoming hardened people who are unable to recognize injustice when we see it. And we begin to think perhaps that caring for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the refugee, is an elective and not something that's required of us by the God who calls us to join him in the work of seeking peace and justice in the world. Denying the reality of injustice is actually not something the Bible allows us to do. And it's not something the book of Job allows us to do, which is what we'll see in a minute. Because the book of Job is entirely about someone who suffers unjustly. Job declares his innocence throughout the book, and God never denies it. Denying the reality of injustice is a dead-end road. It's a simplistic and ultimately false answer that makes us weird and unhelpful and often cruel. But there's another simplistic approach also to suffering that I think we should reconsider. And it's this idea that suffering is always God's way of teaching us life lessons. And you've heard it, maybe you've said it, I have for sure. You join your friend in a moment of pain, they're going through something and, the, and what you have to offer is, what do you think God's trying to teach you in this, right? You've said it, you've heard it, and again, God does teach us through suffering, not denying that, right? Um, there's, there's good wisdom in recognizing that as we encounter God, we do become more whole and God forms us through suffering to become mature and helpful. The Apostle Paul even writes to the Corinthian church, blessed be the God of comfort and the father of all mercies who comforts us in our affliction so that we may comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God comforts us in our suffering and in doing so makes us skilled comforters to others who are in any suffering. But that's different from our sufferings being God's school for us where God's doling out life lessons that hurt. Does that make sense? Application point number one, as we see the sufferings of our own lives and of our neighbors as not simply God doling out life lessons, but as symptoms of a world gone wrong, the very things that we just read about Jesus weeping over. Application number one, let's not come alongside one another with the simplistic comfort of what is God trying to teach you or what went wrong that's causing this. The story of Job is a story where his friends come alongside him and do just that, and God blasts them for it. They're miserable friends. They don't offer comfort. They offer explanations, and they ask the kinds of questions that are super unhelpful. So while we don't deny that we do absolutely gain wisdom through suffering, we do absolutely, as we experience God and know his presence in our sorrow, we become seasoned with the grace of God and become skillful helpers of others who are going through suffering themselves. Think about in your own life, who do you go to for wisdom? In my life, I always go to the people who have suffered well, people who've suffered deeply, yet are people of profound hope who haven't just become cynical and bitter through their suffering, but who have become seasoned as skillful friends 
and those who know how to cling to hope and offer love in the midst of sorrow. When we seek to explain particular sufferings through the lens of our needing to learn something from God, it's just another way that we kind of avoid the complexity and the ambiguity and try to grasp for an easy resolution that's sort of a way out. But this is where we discover the treasure of the book of Job. This is a gift to us. Job is a gift. It's profoundly difficult to preach because you can't take a section from it and just say, let's look at it you'll notice that the section we just read is like a mishmash of like three different sections. But Job is a huge long book. It's got two panels at the beginning and end that are, that are narrative. And then the whole midst of the book is verse. And it's this big, long, complicated journey where Job goes through absolute horror in his life. And his friends come alongside him and they are miserable comforters, right? They're convinced Job has done something to deserve this. They don't have a theology for unjust suffering or the innocent sufferer. They're convinced that there's some reason that this is happening and they're coming alongside, uh, alongside Job in the least helpful of ways. And at the very end, what you see is Job having gone through question after question after question to God and God can handle his questions. He's gone through this whole thing. God actually shows up in the midst and reveals himself as the one who's there. As the story ends, God restores all things, makes it all right. But the way that we pull this toward our lives as Christians, and this has been happening since the earliest days of the church, is that we recognize in the character of Job a prefiguring of Christ, where God himself comes as man of sorrows into our world where God himself comes as the one who weeps over the city of the people who are supposed to want him and love him, who weeps over the death of a friend. And so Job, as we look at it as a window into the very heart of God, a window into the heart of Christ, it's a gift to both sufferers and comforters alike. Because the guidance that we find there is not the simplistic option offered by pop wisdom that comes from both the religious and the non-religious alike. But instead, what we find in Job is a complicated, nuanced, patient, gut-wrenching, honest, yet faithful treatment of our experience of suffering that leads us through the complexity into a place of simple trust in God that is anything but naive. Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, for the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. You know, the simplicity on this side of complexity, the simplicity that can only exist by turning a blind eye to all that's, that's ambiguous and confusing and hard, that's just naive. That's just escapist. But the simplicity on the far side of complexity the wise simplicity that has navigated all of the trials of life, all the ups and downs, the tragedies and the triumphs, and yet lands at the simple place of childlike trust in our loving Father who holds us. That's the precious gift of faith that we begin to discover as we stop grasping for explanations and instead receive the gift of God's presence in the midst of our sorrow. You see, we ask questions of why. Why is this happening? Why would God let this happen? We ask questions of how long will this go on? We ask questions of how is it possible 
that this could coexist with a good and loving God? Why is Ukraine being obliterated by Russia right now? Why are our relationships in tatters? Why is there pain? We ask these questions, and they're not bad questions, and God can handle every single one of them. But the precious gift that we find in Job and the same precious gift that we find in Jesus is that God receives our questions of why. And God receives our questions of how long. And he responds with an answer of who. He doesn't always answer the why. He doesn't answer the how long. He answers with, I'm with you. And the God who is with us, the God who answers the question of who, is the one who steps into our world as Jesus, the man of sorrows who weeps. One who is fully acquainted with all of the pain and agony of human life that you and I endure. One who knows deeply the fear and the dread of suffering that is to come. I mentioned that I recently had the privilege of getting to travel to Israel. I spent the last couple of weeks there, and I had a really profoundly moving experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus himself awaited his own arrest, knowing that he'd been betrayed, where he went into the garden and actually contended with God in agony. Father, may this cup pass. Is there any other way? And he experienced the unanswered prayer that you and I experience. How is it possible that a good and loving and all-knowing God who's all-powerful could himself experience unanswered prayer? These are also mysteries. Yet this is the God who makes himself known to us in Jesus. This is the God with whom we have fellowship in and through the Son of God, the Lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. He knows you. He knows your sorrow. He has his own. He's not the kind of high priest who's without his own suffering. He knows it deeply. He's bled and he's died. He's wept. He's also risen from the grave. And the hope that he gives to you and to me is not just the fellowship in sorrow. It's certainly not less than that. But it is also this profound hope that sorrow and death don't get the last word. Just as Job's situation, as the circumstances were horrific for Job, they were never what was truest about his life. The presence of God and the future God would write for Job was always more real and more enduring than the calamity he suffered. And the same was true for Jesus. As he went to the cross and endured it, even as he despised its shame, why did he do it? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him and even as Jesus from the cross is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he offers up his final breath and dies. There's still something more true about his life than death. And God rose him from the dead. And he became 
the first fruits of a new harvest of new creation. He became the firstborn from the dead. He became the one who ushers in the hope of an entirely new way that shows us that the future that God is writing is not one that we begin to partake of by way of avoiding suffering, but it is one that as we join Jesus in solidarity in the midst of it, God is faithful to lead us through it and beyond it into the glory that he is bringing and making to last on the earth forever. And he has written us into the story in him. How can evil and unjust suffering persist in the presence of a good and all-powerful God? I have no idea, and you don't either. No one does. But God answers that question with a who answer. And however it works out, he says, here's my answer. I'm going to put myself beneath it. I will not sit above it. I will join you in it. I will die under its weight and I will eliminate it from the world forever. And that's what he's done in Jesus. And so as we grasp for our answers, as we seek resolution, as we sit with the complicated and confusing and painful ambiguity, let us recognize the beauty of the who answer that is far more important than all the whys and the how longs that we ask for. God meets us in our sorrow. He is faithful to join us in it. He feels it with you. He has died under its weight. He has risen from its tyranny and he has promised a day where it will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from every eye and that's the hope that we have in Christ. May God give us grace to receive the gift he's given us, to know the fellowship of the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, the man, the God who meets us in our suffering. Let's pray. God, we confess that we don't understand so much about the world. We pride ourselves on being smart. We pride ourselves as a human race on being able to figure everything out develop technologies that conquer all the threats. Yet we still die and we still get confused about stuff and we still fight with one another and we're still back at square one where humanity has been from the beginning. We just do it with better tools. We need your help. We need to know the simplicity of life with you amid the complexity and on the far side of complexity of the sorrows of this life. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you know us to the depth of our being. Thank you for the hope of resurrection life, that sadness and sorrow and brokenness will not have the last word, but that we will live with you forever. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that. Help us to be that as those who've experienced your comfort in our affliction. Would you make us those who are able to comfort our neighbors? who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received from you. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.